One of the most important things to understand about the letter of James is one of its most essential messages. And we said this at the very beginning, and it's, and it's worth repeating again here as we close out the letter, is that James is at pains to remind his readers that we live in what you might call an open world. That there is always this great temptation to believe that at kind of at the end of the day, we live in a closed system. That maybe God is interested in what happens in the world. Maybe he's a close observer of what happens in the world. Maybe even at times he intervenes in the world in some kind of unseen way. But ultimately things are going to be the way that things are. The ancients called this fate. Today uh, we chalk this up to what you might call naturalism, that uh, because we have figured out how the world works through science, which itself is a flawed claim, but because we can explain why things happen the way they do, that um, what happens in our lives and what happens in history is, is merely the unfolding of inevitable factors bouncing into each other. James wants his readers and therefore wants us to see the world very differently. That James believes that the intervention of God, most climactically seen through Jesus's coming into the world, suggests a very different story. That far from an interested observer at best, that God continues to be actively involved in the outcomes of your life and in the outcome of human history in general. And therefore, there's a way to live in the midst of that reality. We are not to be fatalists. We are not to be those who believe that something like we'll be talking about today, that something like prayer, while nice, while a uh, precious sort of religious, and I mean precious in a condescending way, a precious religious practice, that prayer doesn't really impact anything. And as much as James, I think, is largely going after kind of a fatalistic view of, in this particular passage, of prayer, there's also an... Folks like myself, like many of you, can be just as prone to write off prayer because we over-theologize it as well. We say, well, maybe God uses the means of prayer in order to accomplish ends that he was going to do anyway. And so we out-theologize the clear promises of Scripture. We out-theologize the simple teaching of Jesus himself, who said, you have not because you ask not. Ask, seek, knock, and it will be granted. It will be open to you. And so what I am asking you to, to do is to pull back on that temptation. And many of us who maybe have been around church for a long time, inevitably will hear this and immediately start doing that. We'll immediately start theologizing. We'll immediately start doing something that the scriptures don't ask us to do which is that a lot of the reason why we do that is because we feel like we need to defend a passage like this from itself. And the Word of God does not need our defense. It can stand on its own two feet in the simplicity of what it's actually asking. And so, as we get into this text proper, let's start at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. 
Now my mind goes in a hundred different directions, but let me just talk about what I think these, this opening command is getting towards. It's saying, if anyone among you is suffering, they should pray. <laughs> That's what it's saying. It's saying that clearly. It's saying it straightforwardly. It's saying it without the need to defend itself and say, but pray, but keep your expectations realistic. Pray, but know that um, God may or may not listen, but he's always going to be there to comfort you whether or not he chant. No, no, no. It just says pray. It doesn't necessarily need to argue why. It says that in the midst of our suffering, and this is this word that recurs throughout this letter, to speak of what James in the first chapter calls trials of various kinds. This is that kind of suffering. It's kind of various suffering. This is a term that's used for physical suffering, for emotional suffering, for suffering even with great doubts. It's the kind of suffering that those who are persecuted uh, endure. So if you're in any of those categories, which is pretty broad, and especially in a moment like we are living in, after a year like we have just had, and after many of us have been reminded in the first couple weeks of 2021 that for some reason things aren't changing on a dime, if that's you and you're overwhelmed, pray. And if there's one thing that it seems like in these closing paragraphs, of this letter, James is at pains to tell us again and again is that an open world calls for us to believe in an active God. And an active God desires for us to call upon him in prayer. An open world assumes an active God and an active God wants us to call out in the midst of especially our distress and suffering. Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone on the other side of things? Let him sing praise. The verb that's used here is the, is the verb for psalms. Uh, let him sing praise. Again, whether you're going through difficult times or whether things are great, this, this word cheerful here is just kind of this word for you're doing okay, you're, do, you're doing well, things are, things are going the way that they should be. He says your mouth should still be open and in praise to God. Remember last week where we said many of you, many of you, the, the, the Spirit of God used the text of James last week in, in a particularly deep way. Uh, I have the great privilege of, of getting access to that awareness at times. When you, when you preach every week and things, every now and then you just get this sense that, that God used a particular text to just get the ear of his people. And the thing that seemed to resonate with so many last week is just this idea that the one thing that Job did right is he kept talking to God. And this is not dissimilar to that, except this is saying that there's also a temptation that when things are going really well, suddenly we are silent towards God. That oftentimes the only thing that does get us to open our mouths is the most desperate moments of life. When God actually wants access to our hearts, wants us to be speaking to him through prayer in all seasons of life. Because in the suffering, we need to remember that he is active and able to intervene on our behalf. In the rejoicing, we need to remember that all good and perfect gifts come from his hands. That we are actually to be a grateful people because there's a giver of the good things in our lives. See, this also, while it sounds like a command, is actually a joy. It's actually a privilege that we have as the people of God. That as so many have noted that one of the things that that people who have 
whether you're a Christian or just theistic in, in some kind of a way, that one of the things that is most difficult about an atheistic life, about a life where you believe that no one is behind the, the bad things that happen or the good things that happen, is that in the beauty of this world, in the good things of this world, in the, in the precious moments of this world, there's no one to look up and thank. There's no giver of those things. You don't see a hand behind those. You equally see randomness and chance behind those. We are not to be among those who believe that within that closed system that the good is just as accidental as the bad. That we are to see the good as from the hand of a precious, loving Father who is inclined toward us. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This, uh, this verse gets a lot of attention when people turn to, to this particular chapter of James, and as well it should, that this is, this is a powerful thing. That's a, this seems like a, a practice in the early church that James is, just couldn't commend enough. It likely comes from the fact that when Jesus, back in, in Mark chapter 6, I believe it is, uh, let me check my work there. Mark chapter 6, verse 13. When Jesus sends out the apostles, sends out the 12 and commissions them. It's the first time, this is before, well before he goes to Jerusalem, well before he's crucified. One of the first times that he sends out the 12, this is something that they're said to have done. The, these are instructions that they seem to have gotten directly from Jesus. Is that when they go and pray for the sick and lay hands on them, they're to anoint them with oil. And there's so much conversation around what this is. But ultimately, what isn't going on is because of a thousand other things that, that even this passage says, but a thousand other things that the scriptures say, but a couple of things that this passage says even. But what isn't going on here is that there's something magical, either about the elders or about the oil. That's not what's going on. There's not something particularly, uh, the, the, the substance of the elders' prayers and the substance of the oil is not where the magic is found here. Clearly, throughout this passage, the, the only thing that matters about the effectiveness of prayer is the one to whom we pray. <laughs> the only thing magical is God himself. There's nothing magical about the elders or oil. So what's going on here? Because this is a, an interesting instruction that's given. At the very least, we might say that the elders represent the church. Our church has elders. We've, we've always believed in a plurality of elders as those who who bear the spiritual responsibility for the community. And so to call upon the elders is, is to call upon those who represent the church. And, and at least what's going on here is that especially in that time, and especially in our time, as we have all found out in 2020, that sickness had a way of isolating someone from the community of faith. And so to call upon the elders is to call upon the church to be in active resistance to the kind of isolation that the sick person was almost certainly experiencing in that moment. What's beautiful here, and, and what many commentators note, is that it's actually the sick person who's, who calls upon the church. That there's actually this, especially in ancient times, if you were sick, the first assumption, we get this throughout the scriptures, we get this in Job, we get this in how people interact with Jesus around sickness. The assumption around sickness was you had done something wrong and you were being punished by God or the gods. What's beautiful here is that when a Christian, when a follower of Jesus was to be sick, they were to have feel the audacity to call upon the church and, and that the church would move 
toward them in that sickness. They were not to further self-isolate, in other words. They were to push against that cultural assumption to say, no, this is actually a time where I have permission to call upon the church to be near me. This is a, this is a beautiful countercultural thing that's, that's being uh, seen as, as, as at the heart of the culture of the church. That when our own are sick, we move toward them. We don't move away from them. And again, just irony of ironies in a season of quarantine and all of those things. But this is talking about, you know, kind of a, a broader definition of sickness. And so the image that's being gotten at here is that when the elders come, they come on behalf of the entire community. And and the the oil, a bunch of different opinions, what, what, what I'm most compelled by is that the oil throughout the scriptures is a it's a, it's, it's anointing. It's, uh, it's actually, this word anointing is where we get the word Messiah from. It's, it's one who is particularly chosen and set apart from God is anointed with oil through the scriptures. Why would you do this among someone who is sick? It's because as the people of God, we ourselves have taken on the status audaciously again of those who, who are anointed by God, who are set apart by God, who are called by God as his own. And it seems like maybe especially in the place of sickness and suffering, one would need to be reminded of that by his fellow brothers and sisters on behalf of the church. Do you hear that here? That the anointing with oil is to say, just because you are sick and isolated now does not mean that your status in God is at all called into question. In fact, we are here to reaffirm that to you. We are here to remind you that there is a God who still calls you his own, who still is near to you, is still with you in the midst of this suffering. And while you are sick and isolated and weak, we are bringing the strength, the togetherness, the community of the church. And we are, we are giving that resource to you as dramatically, as vividly as we possibly can. We're bringing all that and saying you are not alone in this. You have a community that is with you in it. This is a profound word for us in the season that we are in, that we are called especially in a world that that has to be, and I'm not saying don't quarantine, keep quarantining, but especially with the gift of technology that we have in these times, we must be those who say, especially the people of God stayed connected in this time, especially the people of God when they heard that one among us was sick and suffering, moved toward each other, found ways to connect with each other, brought the strength, the connectedness of the community, represented that community one to another as best we could stretch forth a hand and whatever that looks like in this time to say, you are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. There is a God who is with you and there is a community that is with you. That's the command here. And look again, just to keep this as simple as we can, this is something that we are not particularly able to do. I was just talking to a family uh, a week and a half ago who, who is going through some, some terrible sickness and they said one of the great losses in this is we're not able to do this passage, right? And the truth is we're, we are and we aren't, right? We can do this in certain ways. But I do want to say, especially on the other side of this, be quick to do this. Call your elders. Make us do this. Make us show up at your house, maybe even with a little bit of oil, as strange as that might sound, to remind you that the church is with you, to remind you that God is with you. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is, this is just one of the most fascinating verses, I think, in the entire book of James. It works on like four different levels. It works on the simple level that we are to believe by faith that prayer matters, that it does something, that it accomplishes things, that when we pray and one is healed, that the prayer was the means of that healing, that God was the one who healed, but the means was that prayer. As simple as that. We are to always pray because we believe by faith that prayer changes things. James is doing something interesting here, though, because look at the language that he uses. And this pops out in your English translation. You know, you don't need any fancy Bible study tools to see this. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Save and raised up. What do those make you think of? Those are like the big categories of Christianity. Salvation and raising up, resurrection. This, this is actually the word that is most often used for God's act of resurrection. The, the technical term for resurrection isn't here, but, but more often than not, resurrection is spoken of as God raising Jesus up or raising us up ultimately. So you have salvation and resurrection in this passage. What's going on here? Well, this is where James is aware that prayer works on all of these different levels, is that we are to be people of faith who say, if we pray, uh, I'll be so bold as to say, if we pray, healing is more likely. That's what this passage seems to get at. We're also to believe that there is an ultimate sense in which all prayer is moving toward ultimate cosmic salvation and resurrection. That if God should not choose to heal now, he will yet heal. That we are always to be people in waiting for ultimate healing. That that is what all of this is moving towards. And therefore, every time we interact with that active God, we are interacting with our healer. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, six months from now, a year from now, ultimately at the end of our days. That God will save. That God will raise up those who in faith constantly are moving toward him in all the circumstances of life. And yet that does not undercut the clear teaching here that the, uh, the most basic reading of this verse is this is a promise that when we pray, God will heal. And so we're to live. We're to live in that beautiful. There's no tension there. That's not tension. It's not tension to say God might heal or he might not heal. No, no, no. The clear teaching here is God will heal. The only tension here is, is, is a when is awaiting. This is why so often faith in the New Testament is ultimately, it's awaiting. It's not a, it's not a fingers crossed it might or it might not. It's, a, it's, a, it's not an if, it's a when. And that's what James, through his language here, this is why we have to take time with literature like this, particularly wisdom literature, because it's working. We've got to squeeze it and see what's going on here. It is no accident that James uses such powerful language of salvation and resurrection here when talking about the prayer of faith. Interestingly, he says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Next verse, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now he goes from sickness to sin. He goes from, from things that, for all intents and purposes, happen to us that cause suffering. And now he moves towards our own rebellion 
that inevitably causes a kind of suffering. And what he's doing here is he's showing us <clears throat> not that, that our suffering always comes from our sin. This is something that would, that, that would be lovely if it were that simple. It would be terrifying if it were that simple as well. And it is just simply not the teaching of Scripture. We see this in a couple places in the life of Jesus. Um, there are these interesting moments uh, in Luke 16. These people come to Jesus and they say, Oh, did you hear about uh, people who were, who were killed by the governing authorities? What do you think they did? They must have been terrible people to have that happen to them. Then they say, Did you hear about the tower that fell? This tower fell, Tower of Siloam fell and killed a bunch of people. And they say, Man, so Jesus, I guess bad things happen because those people were bad people. And what Jesus says, so interesting... Uh, I would I would love to quiz you right now. If we were at the 27, I would make you speak up. But Jesus' answer is so interesting. Let me read it to you. So they ask him these questions about these two terrible tragedies. Kind of like, this is the latest thing in the news. And they say, so Jesus, what do you think? Um, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? This is Jesus' uh, response to them. He says, no. I tell you, but unless you repent, you all like you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's, <laughs> it's so Jesus of Jesus. It's so brilliant. He refuses to directly answer the question, did these people sin and therefore die? Instead, what he's saying is he's saying is he's constantly cautioning this direct. I also think of John 9, where that where his own disciples say to him, hey, this this blind man on the side of the road, do you think it was him who sinned or his parents who sinned? Jesus, whoa, whoa, that that's the wrong category. It's just the wrong category to have that that our suffering is not directly related often. Sometimes it is right. And, and often it's easy to see when our suffering is directly brought on by our own sin. But there is not this causal relationship in all kinds of suffering and in all kinds of sickness. And so we need to be really careful. For instance, we need to be careful assuming that, oh, COVID-19 happened because of this particular sin of this particular nation. We just have no indication of that. But what Jesus would say is, I think that what he's saying here is, did COVID-19 happen because of sin? Again, in an ultimate sense, absolutely. Yes, no sin, no COVID-19. No sin, no suffering, because no sin, no death. No sin, no fall, no sin, no imperfect world in which these kinds of things happen. And so, while our sin and sickness, our sin and our suffering might not always have this direct causal relationship, they are at least, I tried to come up with the right word here, analogous doesn't quite get to it because there's still a relationship between the two, but they're at least analogous. They're at least an analogy for each other. In other words, sickness, the attack that it is upon our bodies, the, the suffering that it causes, the weakness that it causes is at least a means that God would have us always move towards to remind us of the far greater sickness that actually goes deeper into our lives, causes a deeper kind of weakness, namely sin itself. That the way that we are so quick to, to pray about sickness, to call others to pray because of the, the imminent danger that we know sickness to be, that we should be just as quick to understand the imminent danger of sin. 
that sin and sickness create an alienation that requires a remedy, an alienation that requires a kind of restoration. Sin and sickness inevitably, uh, or sin and sickness have this inevitability about them without the intervention of God. That sin and sickness are the way of things apart from an open system in which God intervenes. See how there's still relationship there, but they're at least an analogy for one another. That sin and sickness call us to one another's defense. And that ultimately, sickness is the lesser of the two. That's why James here moves from, yes, pray for each other when you're sick, but don't forget to confess sin to one another. Because the lesser, we are so, right? And, and if, if probably you take anything away from this passage is, and, and where my mind goes to is working for eight years with students on campus and you get to, and most of what I did were these small group Bible studies and you get to the end of Bible study and you ask everyone, what can we pray for? And what do you think 90% of the requests were for? And not that there's anything wrong with this. This passage calls us to pray for one another in sickness. But it was mostly, I'm sick or, or this relative is sick. And very seldom was it, I'm sensing the, in, the imminent danger of my lust. I'm sensing the imminent danger of my greed. I'm sensing an unkindness that's growing in me toward this person. I'm sensing a bitterness towards this thing that has happened in my life that is growing into a a sinful obsession with it. I'm sensing a growing anxiety and lack of trust in God for my future. Very rarely (laughs) were, were prayer requests anything remotely in that realm. And so often was it hey, this one is sick and and I see how awful that is for them. James is saying here that as awful as sickness is, there is a greater danger to our souls. As as much weakness as suffering causes, there is something weakening us without God's direct intervention, without our direct attention towards. That is far more dangerous, far more perilous to our souls, right? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, at least use the tragedies of these other people to find yourself on your knees and repent. Because unless you repent, that will eventually be, sickness will ultimately win out. Your body will decay ultimately. There is only so much prayer that can avoid that. But there is a prayer, namely the prayer of repentance and faith in Jesus, that neither sickness nor death nor Satan himself can undo the effect of. That's why Jesus says, unless you repent, you too will perish. And so in a season where we are beset by the awareness of sickness all around us, we are at least called to pray for healing of that sickness. We are at least called to when we hear that someone has come down with COVID or is suffering in some other way and we say, hey, I'll pray for you. We're at least called to be faithful to those words. Think of James saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your I'll pray for you end up in private prayer before God on behalf of one another. At least let that be what we do as a community. And look, what's beautiful is we are about to head into a discipleship course where we are going to push against the inevitable barriers, right? We're a church that exists to break barriers to encounter Jesus together. There are huge barriers around modern people like us cultivating anything remotely like a life of prayer. 
Those are the barriers that for six weeks we're going to try and bring down. We're going to try and develop some kind of prayer culture at this church that is actually faithful, that when we text one another and say, hey, I'll be praying for you, that that actually lands somewhere. That lands in a prayer journal and lands with us on a couch at some point in a day saying, God, I lift such and such up to you because I said that I would pray for them. And we're just going to see what happens because we're going to take this kind of text seriously. But what James is saying and what Jesus is saying is that ultimately there's an argument from the lesser to the greater here. That if we're willing to pray for that, how much more should we be aware of the sin that is constantly a danger in our lives? That is constantly, inevitably, look, the craziest thing, Bonhoeffer, great German uh, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the craziest thing about Christian community is that we're stunned when someone confesses that they're struggling with sin. That the discovery of a sinner in our midst becomes this like, boy, Johnny made it awkward at small group the other night, didn't he? When he talked about that sin that he's, and Bonhoeffer says it ought not be. The way into Christian community is to say, I'm a sinner in need of grace and in need of salvation, in need of the work of God. Then when we show up and we say, hey, still a sinner in need, that's what we, that's how we all got in. And then we say, yes, still me. We go, shocking. That makes things awkward. That's weird. Bonhoeffer says, oh, that we would push against that and make the baseline assumption. So which sins are threatening you right now? What are you struggling most with? What do you need to confess with? Don't rack your brain. You don't need to rack your brain. Just confess your sin to me. And he says, that's when the healing begins. Because we suddenly, if we can normalize the presence of sin, we can begin to normalize fighting against it. We can begin to normalize holding one another accountable. We can begin to normalize praying against it. But if it's always secret, if it's always the unmentionable in Christian community, then those things go unsaid. And we find that the only things that we're praying for are sort of first level needs, like James is talking about here. He says, confess your sins to one another. And then I love what he does with the language here. In verse uh, 16, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And then I love this. Now he's talking about sin. Now he's talking about confession. And we might expect him to go back to what he's just said, which is, and you will be forgiven. And you will be, and what I love here is he says, and you will be healed. So before he talks about sickness and he uses language that we normally associate with sin. Here, He's talking about confessing sin, and he uses language that normally we talk about when we're talking about sickness. And so do you see this beautiful interplay where he's saying at the very least, and my goodness, this is a word literally in season in COVID-19. At the very least, when sickness comes along, which we are just prone. Look, this might never change. We're just prone to be more aware of sickness. We're prone more to feel the scratch in our throat than we are the danger of sin crouching at our door. It's just the way it is. But James is saying one of the best ways to get around that is to see these two things as deeply analogous and related to each other such that we say, man, that scratch, I have a scratch in my throat. There's probably some sin. Not that's causing it, but there's probably some sin that's scratching at deeper things in my life that I need to go and confess to someone. Man, imagine if that was our instinct. Imagine, I I just heard someone say, imagine if the church fought racism the way that it's fighting COVID-19. 
That's a beautiful thought. We, we did everything we can to avoid it. We called it out in our midst. We said that it could be present and therefore we're willing to do anything to eject it from our presence, to make sure that it doesn't spread, to make sure that people are protected from it. I would just broaden that a little bit more and say, what if we fought all sin the way that we are all so committed to fighting COVID-19, that we saw it as dangerous and deadly as we see COVID-19? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If there's anything in all of James to commit to memory, it's this. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Why? Not because there's anything magic about the righteous person. It's because all of the power is in the one that we are praying to. Then he says this, he ends with one last example from the Old Testament. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What's great here, and just about every commentator points this out, is like, this is kind of like the most random thing you could pull out of the story of Elijah to talk about his commitment to prayer and his faith in a God who is still active in the world. In fact, if you go back to the story that this is talking about, it's kind of hard to figure out where Elijah actually prays. And that seems to be the point. What he's saying here is Elijah is a man with a nature like ours. Now that sounds like, oh, he's, he's just, he, he's, I don't know what you hear in a nature like ours. The actual word there is that he experienced the world the same way that we do. And this is particularly true about Elijah, is he was a guy who doubted at times. He was a guy who felt bad for himself. He was a, a guy who then would be super bold in his faith, but he felt everything that we feel. It's basically a way of saying he 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 was just a he was just a, a guy like like I am. He, he he's just like you. There's nothing magical about Elijah. And yet, uh, and then James is like, there was this time where he prayed and didn't rain for for three and a half years. And he says, and then he did. And then it rained. And what, what he seems to be doing is, again, James, in the book we're about to go into, Hebrews, they assume a knowledge of the Old Testament. And what you should do, if you know anything a lot about Elijah, is you go, that's your example from the life of Elijah? There's a lot cooler stuff. And I think James would go, exactly. This is like saying, um, I don't know, it's like saying, I once saw LeBron James make a layup. Uh, if you're not a sports person, you'd be like, okay, like that's the coolest thing you can talk about with LeBron James. If you're not a sports person, it's like, you know, um, I don't know, you end up at a birthday party and, and you're next to Beyonce and you're like, hey, you hit that last note, that happy birthday. You hit that really beautifully. You, that was that was really something. And people would be like, do you know who you're talking to? Is That's what seems to be going on here. Is like, this was the least of, Elijah was involved in praying over child and, and it raising from the dead. Elijah, the, this story actually brackets this crazy story where he's on a mountain with all these other prophets of Baal and he calls down rain and God sends out fire. Like, why not point that out? The point is that it's, again, an argument from the lesser to the greater. Look, the least of what Elijah prayed for. And just think about this. The least of what he prayed for is that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years. And James is going, yeah, that's the beginning example of what prayer accomplished in the life of a man who was full of faith in an active God in the world. And so how much more should we be a people? Because here's, here's what I'll end with. A lot of arguments from the lesser to the greater in this passage. Prayer is always an argument from the greater to the lesser. We are more prone 
Jacob Swell, and if I could just call us out as a community right now, we are often a prayerless community. One, uh, and, and look, this starts with me. This is something that I need to grow in. I have said so many times that one of my deepest desires for our community, and in, insofar as it's for our community, it's for myself, is that our first instinct would be prayer in the midst of difficulty. We are a people whose faith is founded upon a man who was dead and then wasn't dead anymore. A perfect one who walked and, and lived a perfect life on our behalf, did miracles his whole life through, and then did the ultimate miracle in bearing the full weight of sin and death and the curse and hell upon himself, all of the judgment of God, and then came out victorious over those things. And yet when difficulty comes, we say, I don't know. I don't know if he's capable of this one. I think it's just going to go the way it's going to go. I don't know if he cares. I don't know if he would actually listen to my demands as small as they are right now. Your prayers are never an argument from the lesser to the great. You're, you're never going to say, well, God has done this, but is he really capable of doing this? Your prayers will always be, he was capable of that. How much more is he capable of this? Every prayer you will ever pray is a greater to the lesser. It will always be lesser than what he has ultimately accomplished. Even healing in this life, as miraculous as that might be, and there are stories in our community of God's miraculous intervention to heal, and oh, that I wish he would heal more. I'm looking at certain faces on my screen now, and I'm saying, why won't he heal? But if he were to heal, even that will be a lesser work than what he will yet do. When he wipes away every tear, when he takes sickness away from ever, when he restores to you everything and everyone that was lost in him, there's a greater work inevitably coming. And therefore, whatever you ask of him is far less audacious than you think that it is. It is simply you. Being a rational follower of Jesus who has already put your faith in his resurrection. Therefore, why not pray? Why not go to him? Why not go to the one who cares enough, who sees you in your pain, who sees you in your loneliness? If we are willing to have the audacity to believe in a risen Savior, we can at least have the rationality to request of him whatever our hearts desire. We now, right now, have an opportunity to do that. I did not plan this. I would like to say I did. It just so happens to be a prayer room Sunday. That's where we're going into breakouts. And look, this is not to throw shade on anyone. On prayer room Sunday, more of us drop off than on every, any other Sunday. And my guess is, because it's a little intimidating, you know you're going to be with people you maybe don't know, but if I could just push you a little bit because of this text and say, can you just stay? Can you stay for this Sunday? Because we have an opportunity to go before that all-powerful, all-knowing, all-caring, empathetic, compassionate God now and to pray lesser prayers than what many of us already believe he has done for us and will yet do. We are about to start a discipleship course where we're going to talk about developing a life that is based upon this, that goes to him regularly. I want us to grow in that. I want it to be a first instinct. I want it to be something that as a church, we are just quick 
to pray for each other. I was just talking to someone. I, I won't call this person out because I didn't ask for permission, but someone on this call lost a parent very recently. And, and the first thing that they said to describe the faith of their parent is they said, she was the kind of person that if she said she would pray for you, she'd stop right there on the spot and pray for you. That shouldn't be, that's amazing. What if that wasn't exceptional in a community like ours? What if we followed that model and said, that should be the first instinct of all of us if we believe what we claim to believe. So we're about to go into prayer rooms. Here's the question that I want you to be thinking about because we're just going to share prayer requests and then pray for one another. It's going to be a simple format. I remember being on a, on a call in the midst of COVID. This is probably three or four months into COVID, kind of in the pit of it. We were with a bunch of leaders and, and it was a night that we had set aside to pray together. And we asked everybody, um, what do you need? Uh, I remember the, our directors of care, Chris and, and Chris Rodonovich and Rachel Suarez were leading the call and they asked, what do you need? What does each of you need? And the call was totally quiet and very awkward and no one wanted to say anything. And then Chris jumped back into the call and he said, what if we change the question? We just said, what if you felt permission to ask God for what you wanted right now? And I think that we're so afraid as followers of Jesus to bring our desires to him because we, we've been overtrained in being suspicious of our desires. We've been overtrained in saying prayer is not for you to get what you want. That the actual godly things that we want, because what then happened is it was like a waterfall of people coming out and saying, you know what I want? I just want to know that God is with me. I just want my kids to be okay. I just want my... And, and nothing that was shared was remotely out of the realm of what I believe that God would want to move toward us in. And so think of that. What do you want from God right now? And again, I like this word audacity. Have the audacity to answer that question honestly and to share that with your group. And then we're going to pray for each other into those things. Let me pray for you now, and then uh, Rachel will transition us into that time. Father God, resurrected Savior. Father God, who created the world, Holy Spirit, who knows the innermost parts of who we are. God, would you bring um, faith, greater faith, to our community through even this word this morning? God, would you bring healing as we pray for those who are sick and suffering? God, I think of specific names, Lord, and I even just lift those to you now, Lord. And then, God, would you make us a people quicker to see the threat and the suffering caused by our sin and to be those who would confess that sin one to another? Lord, these are big goals for a community, uh, but they feel pretty central to what you would want from your church. So God, as we head into this discipleship course, this feels like a launching text as much as it's anything. As we head into this discipleship course over these six weeks, we pray we would be different people individually and corporately on the other side of this and that this text will feel like less of a challenge and more like something um, that, that is bearing fruit. I think of this text that said, when Elijah prayed, there, there came around and there bore fruit. Lord, I pray that as we pray that fruit would be born through this fruit of repentance and confession, fruit of healing, of bigger faith and of bigger prayers. God, be with us now, Lord. Help us to fight against the discomfort of these prayer rooms, Lord. There's something beautiful about knowing that now we will all be speaking to the one capable, the one active in this world. So God, make us people of prayer today over these minutes that we have together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.